Why has a prominent Ukrainian journalist been detained for almost a year without ever going to trial? Is there a threat to press freedom in post-Maidan Ukraine, and who benefits from restricting truth-tellers? Why has Ukraine nationalism suddenly become so influential in the country since the Maidan? Will the election of a comedian to the presidency significantly change the direction Ukraine has been headed in since 2014? What are the prospects for peace in the Donbass and the improvement of relations with Russia under new President Zelensky? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we return to Ukraine following that country's recent election of a new president and examine some of the developments shaping democracy in that country. We will hear first from Ava Bartlett about a journalist detained for a year without a formal trial. Then we will hear from Ukraine-based journalist George Eliasson about the Ukraine nationalist movement and how that played out over the course of the last presidential election and its aftermath. On this week's program, Ukraine's democratic deficit, restriction of press freedom, the blight of nationalism, and the war in Donbass five years after Maidan. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 3rd, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro addressed the country in a televised speech on Tuesday evening, accusing those responsible for the military uprising of trying to provoke a massacre and lauding the armed forces for their restraint in avoiding direct confrontations. Who benefits from these confrontations? Who finances them? Undoubtedly, the leadership of the terrorist ultra-right party, Popular Will, Maduro declared, referring to the party of Lopez and Guaido. He added that today's actions would not go unpunished, explaining that eight military officers and policemen were wounded in the armed confrontations before going on to blast U.S. leaders for their role in endorsing the coup attempt. That comes from the article, Venezuelan Military Putsch Defeated as Leopoldo Lopez Takes Refuge in Spanish Embassy by Ricardo Vaz, posted May 1st, originally published at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. From Washington's standpoint, the putsch nonetheless served a useful purpose. It created a narrative which serves as propaganda and media disinformation. In turn, the Western media goes into high gear. The coup becomes a talking point for the Bolton-Pompeo national security team. It becomes a pretext and a justification for U.S. military intervention in the name of democracy at some future date. That comes from the article, The Spontaneous Military Coup in Caracas Was Meant to Fail? Comparison with the failed June 29, 1973 coup which preceded the September 11, 1973 military coup against Salvador Allende. By Professor Michel Chosodovsky. 
posted May 1st. Diego Garcia hosts the U.S.'s largest Navy base outside the American continent. Many of the drone killings in Yemen, Syria, and other places in the Middle East originate from Diego Garcia. The civil war in Syria was, and still is, largely directed from Diego Garcia as well as from Djibouti. Wouldn't it be logical for NATO to set up base in Sri Lanka to control Southeast Asia? Saudi-guided WSD attacks would create the necessary chaos justifying Western Secret Services plus NATO to descend on Colombo to create further protests and anarchy, a never-ending internal strife giving the war industry a new, never-ending flow of profit, hence further justifying the never-ending war on terror, and thereby moving yet an inch closer to full-spectrum dominance over Mother Earth and her hapless spectators, what Western humanity has become, a bunch of complacent consumers drenched in turbo-capitalist market ideology too comfortable to go on the barricades. That comes from the article, Sri Lanka, Candidate for a New NATO Base, by Peter Koenig, posted May 1st, originally published on New Eastern Outlook. A trigger warning is in effect for the following story, which features subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. While the problem of cops engaged in sex trafficking is part of the American police state's seedy underbelly that doesn't get addressed enough, equally alarming is the number of cops who commit sex crimes against those they encounter as part of their job duties, a largely underreported number given the blue wall of silence that shields police misconduct. Former Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper describes cases in which cops fondled prisoners, made false traffic stops of attractive women, traded sexual favors for freedom, had sex with teenagers, and raped children. Young girls are particularly vulnerable to these predators in blue. Former police officer Phil Stinson estimates that half of the victims of police sex crimes are minors under the age of 18. According to the Washington Post, a national study found that 40% of reported cases of police sexual misconduct involved teens. That comes from the article, Predator Cops Guilty of Sex Crimes Against Women and Children Are a Menace to Society, by John W. Whitehead, posted May 1st, originally published on the author's website, the Rutherford Institute. Hegemonic globalization has resulted in the dissemination of ideas and methods in economics and finance, politics and administration, education and science, which by and large emanate from the centers of power in the West. It has shaped a world in which the interests and agendas of the dominant West supersede everything else. This is why the second wave of globalization is perceived as unjust and inimical to the well-being of the majority of the world's citizens. As globalization's third wave, OBOR is opposed to hegemony. The Chinese leadership sees relationships among OBOR states as a partnership. That comes from the article, China's Belt and Road Initiative, Towards a Just World, by Dr. Chandra Muzaffar, posted May 1st. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Five years following the toppling of Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, Ukraine is enjoying questionable successes. The Donbass region is caught up in a deadly civil war. Crimea has separated from the country and rejoined the Russian Federation. The economy is in rough shape. Ultranationalists, including neo-Nazis, have reportedly grown in influence. A critical freedom that may have been compromised is freedom of the press. This month marks the anniversary of the arrest and detention of a prominent chief editor of the publication RIA Novosti, Ukraine. As reported by Canadian journalist Ava Bartlett in two recent articles from Mint Press News, the accusation that this editor has committed high treason stems from his publication of dissenting perspectives on the events of 2014 Ukraine. On a week marking World Press Freedom Day, The Global Research News Hour got hold of Ava Bartlett to provide some background on this incarcerated journalist. Ava Bartlett is an award-winning independent Canadian journalist, recently returned from a fact-finding visit to Venezuela. Her articles have appeared on a number of independent online sites, including Global Research. You wrote two articles on uh, Kirill Vyshinsky, a Ukraine-Russian journalist. And, uh, you know, there's not been a lot of uh, attention to this particular case uh, in certainly not in the Western media, I, I even checked Amnesty International's website, and they've no. I, I don't see any reference to it there either. Um, so, first of all, maybe I should ask you, uh, like, who is Kirill Vyshinsky, and 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 how did you happen to uh, uh, find out about this story? Um, yeah, it, so I'll start with the latter question. I found out when a um, another journalist. Um, an American journalist approached me uh, sometime last year, saying, asking if I could help, please uh, bring awareness to the case. And um, I'm just actually looking through. There we go. So the first thing I did was to interview Vladimir Rodzienko, this journalist uh, who had been advocating for Kirill Vyshinsky. Now, um, basically, Kirill, um, he is uh, Ukrainian, and he also has Russian citizenship. And in May, almost one year ago, in May 2018, he, his, um, now I'm trying to remember the exact details, that his home and office were searched, I believe, and he was uh, imprisoned. And the, the state authorities of Ukraine are accusing him of high treason. Um, however, he's, he's been held in pretrial detention since uh, May 2018, so almost May 15th, 2018, so almost one year he's been in pretrial detention. And um, so I, I then later interviewed, I actually interviewed um, Kirill by email um, after that. And I can, I can cite from that. I'm just going to open that up for you. Um, and it was very interesting uh, to have his replies because basically the, the breakdown is that he's being accused of high treason based on the fact that he published 14 or so articles back in 2014 on events that were happening in Ukraine. So the, um, the the revolution that they, they are, they're calling it in Ukraine, where the, the bloody uh, revolution, um, 
and other people would definitely not call it a revolution, but he was publishing a variety of opinions um, because he is the editor of RIA Novosti Ukraine. Uh, so as an editor, he was publishing people's um, opinion pieces on events in Ukraine, and um, none of them were written by himself, and they all had a disclaimer at the very at the on on the on each piece, um, as most websites do, saying something to the effect that you know the opinions expressed here are those of the author and don't necessarily reflect the website. So because he published these 14 or so articles back in 2014. Um, this is this is basically the evidence, the main evidence that state is holding against him, um, accusing him of treason. Now, the interesting thing is, these articles weren't one-sided. They did express different points of view. And the other thing is, um, when I interviewed him, I asked, well, had um, had the state, you know, been harassing you for years since you had been publishing these, you know, five years ago? And he said, no, actually, you know, I wasn't on their blacklist. I was not harassed at all. Um, it was only in 2018 that they decided these articles were very dangerous to the state. So it's clearly a political um, thing they're doing with him. Now, I then later went to Kiev. When was that? That was um, February, I believe, this year. I went to Kiev, and I interviewed his lawyer, Andrei Demansky. And um, he also agreed that basically this is a political case. Kirilshinsky is being held as a card um, they both believed that it had to do with the, the elections, which have now passed recently, uh, and that holding him, although he has not had trial, would be um, kind of a, a playing card so they could try to exchange him for a, a prisoner in perhaps in Russia. But again, they, um, I think it was Mr. Domansky, the lawyer, who stressed the point, you know, you cannot exchange a person who has not been tried and, and had a verdict. He's still in pretrial detention for somebody who has been tried. Um, now, that was the position of the Russia's uh, human rights ombudsperson, uh, Tatiana Moskalkova, who, mm-hmm. you know, who was uh, at the, the most recent hearing in March and said that, you know, rather than discussing swapping him for a Ukrainian national in prison in Russia, that there should be a fair trial. And I think that's Vyshinsky's position as well, is it not? Absolutely. Yeah, it's his position. And it's his, sorry, the position of his lawyer, Domansky. Now, um, when I met Mr. Domansky in Kiev, one of the last things that we discussed, um, he was saying that he's concerned about the state of Kirill's health, because that, that, that's one important uh, thing, is that Kirill wasn't given adequate health care. Um, and when I asked him about that, he, he had some condition, and he, he basically was given kind of the equivalent of being given aspirin or something when you need something much more. Um, In the article, you mentioned it's like giving vitamin C for a heart attack or you know, yeah, heart condition. Yeah, that's exactly, yes. He said... Um, he was given this word I cannot pronounce. It's like treating acute heart pain with a vitamin C. It won't make things worse, but it doesn't ha- do much to help either. So the only reason um, he was able, to, the only way he was able to get medicine was through his, his lawyer bringing mm-hmm. it to him. Um, however, when I asked Mr. Domansky um, his thoughts, his, his final thoughts, he said, um, "Well, so I'll add to this in a moment. Um, there was there was to be a trial in Kiev on March 20th." Um, a, um, sorry, a, a hearing, not a trial, yeah. at the Supreme Court uh, with Mr. Vichinsky because he was being held in another area called Kherson. And when Domanski mentioned that to me, this is before March 20th, he said, maybe it will become my court hearing and I won't be the lawyer but the accused. The only formal means now of taking me off the case is to start legal proceedings against me. Then if I'm charged, I will be forced to stop my activities as a lawyer. 
um, or some unpleasant and illegal action could happen against me. So basically, he he was saying, you know, they're not pleased because he's he's a renowned defense lawyer, um, and they clearly wanted him off the case. And since he told me that, um, he's actually has now been, and I don't know what the official charge is, but I read some weeks ago that now the state is accusing him of criminal activity. Okay, so that's and a pretty now, significant... I was I was due to go to Kiev for this March 20th hearing, and I might have mentioned this in our last conversation on Venezuela. Um, as it happened, I was in Venezuela. I had already purchased a ticket onwards from Toronto. Um, I planned to leave Venezuela in time to get on, on that flight to Kiev, but um, because American Airlines cancelled all flights to and from Venezuela, I wasn't able to make that trial, so I just wanted to mention that. Uh, yeah, Ava. I, just to back up a little bit, I mean, you you mentioned that uh, the the publication, uh, the, the 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 evidence was in these uh, uh, opinion pieces, not written by Vishinsky in right. this uh, publication, the RIA Novosti Ukraine. Just to to give Westerners a sense who are not familiar, this what what is the scope uh, of well, what kind of a publication is this? Is it would you compare it to something like the the New York Times or or the Toronto Star, or it'd be more a more obscure publication like I don't know Rabble or, or something like that? I mean, could it be dismissed as a pro-Russian tabloid? Uh, that's actually a really good question, and I need to look into more about um, that website because I, I actually haven't. So thank you okay. for bringing that to my attention. So no, I, I, I can't really say. I I want to say um, it it's it's not state media. They are trying to spin it as um, being pro-Russian or as being influenced by Russia. That that much I can say. Do they? Are there any other reasons that that you? are aware of where they might want to to target Vishinsky specifically? So uh, I want to, so I don't misquote him, I want to read his reply um, because I asked him, okay, so the authorities are accusing you of treason. How would you counter this? What were you covering in Ukraine? And he called the accusation false and absurd and then went on to explain how none of the posts that they are including were written by himself. He said the texts were submitted by our contributors who shared their perspective on developments in Ukraine um, in spring 2014 when the referendum was held in Crimea and everything else was getting started in Donbass. Um, and then he went on to talk about how this was part of the opinion section. Um, he said they ignored other texts and other views posted on our website. So that, that, that again um, reiterates that, well, to, to your question, it, it kind of answers your question in the sense that there was a diversity of opinions on this website. So they ignored those texts and accused him of co uh, conducting, quote-unquote, special operations and an information war just because he posted a variety of opinions on the website. And um, he, he asked, what, what does the fact that I impartially allowed people to speak in support of Maidan or against it have to do with special operations? And then I think, again, the other point to just reiterate is that four years for, for over four years past before authorities found these articles offensive. So um, I think that, that indicates that the articles are not the real issue here and that it is political and that he's being used. Okay, well, talk about the timing then. Uh, in 2018, what, is there anything specific about that time that, uh, or you know, suspicious about choosing that date as opposed to earlier? The thing that um, Mr. Domanski, his lawyer, explained was that... Um, so he, Kirill, was uh, supposed to have a hearing in February. 
And he said, um, while we were talking, this is on February 19th, that I met with him, and he was, uh, Kirill was supposed to have a hearing, a pleading, two days later. And uh, Domensky got a call from the court, and he was basically told they'd be limited in the time they were allotted to review the case files. And this is also important because he said there are 31 volumes of uh, case files, each volume between 250 to 400 pages and additionally approximately 80 hours of video footage. So, you know, that the, the, Mr. Domanski and, and Mr. Vyshinsky need to review what's in these files so they know what he's being accused of or what, you know, what allegedly the evidence is. So that's, uh, they're being limited in the amount of time they have. And he said, you know, when they, get, when they do get a chance to uh, review it, they're, they're literally skimming. So they don't have the time to read it word by word. Yeah, that that does seem to be uh, a, a significant uh, irregularity. I mean, you're supposed to know, you should know, have access to the uh, the the evidence against you. Are, are there other irregularities you could speak to about the you know, regardless of the the guilt or, or innocence of Mr. Vishinsky, uh, Vishinsky, that you could speak to in, in terms of how this situation is being dealt with? Well, so as I as I scanned through the, um, the meeting and the interview with Mr. Domanski, uh, in, in, in regards to your earlier question, he said that um, Vyshinsky's detention took place on the 15th of May, and then the following days, different politicians and public figures um, came out, uh, sorry, Ukrainian um, politicians and public figures came out stating that Vyshinsky should be exchanged for political prisoners held in Russia, as I mentioned before. Um, so... It, uh, although the elections didn't happen until a year later, at the end of March, um, it, it could be that, um, in, in regards to your earlier question, it could be that they were preparing the ground to try to boost uh, the, the ratings of the different political figures. Domanski's home was also raided, um, and that was back in January. It was actually after, as he told me, he'd done some talks in Europe and in America talking about... Um, journalism in Ukraine, and uh, I, I believe it was also about like political freedom or freedom of speech in Ukraine and journalist rights, and after, that's when he came back, um, that's uh, shortly after that, that's when the raid occurred on his home. It seems like uh, clearly he's being, um, they're trying to intimidate him, and of course, uh, Kirill Lushinsky is not the only journalist who's being detained in Ukraine. Um, you began by saying, you know, it doesn't seem like any of these human rights groups are waging campaigns, and that's absolutely true. I, I've searched on the different journalist protection type groups' um, websites. One of them, I think it's the Committee to Protect Journalists, does have a, an entry, uh, albeit um, not very outraged entry on Vyshinsky. Um, but I don't think, I think the last time I checked, I didn't find any updates. And, and same, Amnesty International may have had an entry at the very beginning when he was uh, detained, but no updates. And I, I truly believe uh, if the situation was reversed and this was somebody being held uh, without trial in Russia, we'd have flashy, um, alarmist, screaming campaigns on behalf of that person. Mm. You know, when I asked the question about uh, RIA Novosti Ukraine and, and its status uh, within Ukraine, I, I think what I was hoping to get as is a sense of, uh, you know, what kind of a chill factor this sends to other journalists who might think of entertaining uh, critical counter-narratives with regard to, uh, you know, the events of uh, five years ago uh, or, or some of the ongoing uh, events happening uh, today with with the Donbass and, and so on. Um, 
what what are your thoughts about that? You know that you that that you know people might see this. If, if this can happen to Vishinsky, it can happen to me, kind of thing. Is, do you see that as a, a possible dynamic that's in play? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, if you're living in that kind of climate where somebody uh, is arrested or and, and detained um, and accused of treason, of high treason, nonetheless, and conspiring against the state. Uh, simply for publishing dissenting views uh, that are opinion pieces, then that would certainly, I think, damper um, people's inclination to pose questions that could be critical of the state uh, for fear that they would be imprisoned. Absolutely, I think. And that, that's all the more reason why these, these human rights groups, if they weren't already compromised by the U.S. State Department, why they should be advocating for, for Kudelbyshinsky, because... It does affect um, other journalists' ability to do their, you know, practice their profession, and to, uh, um, you know, inform the public. Uh, but th- the sad reality is, you know, our governments have been complicit in events in Ukraine. So I don't foresee these different protection committees or human rights groups jumping to advocate for Vyshinsky anytime soon, particularly when uh, at a time when there's still, you know, there's still so much anti-Russia hysteria, and he does. He does have Russian citizenship, although he was a Ukrainian national by birth. Ava, since writing those two articles uh, from Mint Press News on Vyshinsky, uh, there's been an election which has resulted in the defeat of Petro Poroshenko and the rise of Volodymyr Zelensky, the, the comedian, to the presidency. Um, if the incarceration of Vyshinsky was at least partly used by Poroshenko for political purposes, uh, I'm wondering what incentive there would be now to keep Vyshinsky in jail indefinitely rather than release him or at least grant him a fair and, and speedy trial now that there's a, a different sheriff in town. Uh, do, do you have, what, what insights do you have uh, in the post-election era? Uh, well, that, that is also a good question. Um, I don't know enough about the new president uh, to, you know, this to give an opinion on whether or not he would also use Vyshinsky as a political card, I, I suspect that I suspect that he will remain in prison um, because uh, there is nobody putting pressure aside from Russia, of course, uh, putting pressure to have him be granted a fair trial or released. Um, and I, I just uh, I don't know the pessimistic side of me thinks that no matter who, who this new president is, I. I'm not optimistic that things are going to change that much politically in Ukraine. And the, I, I, I believe the Secret Services, you know, regardless of who is president, at least between Poroshenko and, and this new one, um, I think that uh, they're probably still going to want to delay this trial and use uh, Vyshinsky as a, a card. However, um, there is a call. I'd like to plug this. There is a call. It's been shared on Facebook and uh, some Russian websites. Um, noting that May 15th will mark one year since Vyshinsky was um, arrested and imprisoned. And it's, it's asking for journalists to put their, you know, to add their name um, of support um, for Vyshinsky to have a fair trial. I can send you that link. Um, I have to go through my notes to find it. But there was also something fairly recently, um, a number of um, figures, political figures, I want to say they were from Latin America, um, signing a statement of solidarity with Kirill Vyshinsky. Yeah, it was Latin America. I just found it in my notes. So that I mean that that's uh, that's a nice development. People elsewhere in the world um, knowing about his case. 
and advocating for him. Ava Bartlett, uh, I want to thank you very much. Uh, we're having this conversation on World Press Freedom Day, and so it's uh, it, delightful to be able to have you on as uh, one of my guests for this occasion. So thanks so much for your ongoing work and uh, all the best in your upcoming talks. Thank you, Michael. And I, I just want to make one last point that I, I neglected to make, and that's that um, it's it's wonderful that people are advocating for, for Julian Assange. Um, and I wish that people would, would pause uh, to think about, I mean, I know there's so many cases of journalists um, abducted or imprisoned or, or killed, sadly. But I wish that people would take uh, some time to get informed on, on these areas, and, uh, particularly now in Ukraine, because, again, it's not just Kirill Vyshinsky. We've been speaking with award-winning Canadian journalist and activist Ava Bartlett, author of two recent articles on indefinitely detained journalist Kirill Vyshinsky. Ava Bartlett will be speaking in Edmonton on Saturday, May 4th at 7.30 p.m. at the Ukrainian Centre at 11,018 97th Street at an event hosted by the Edmonton Peace Council. And on Sunday, May 5th, she'll speak in Vancouver at 7 p.m. at Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House at 800 East Broadway at an event sponsored by the Vancouver Peace Council. Ava will be debunking mainstream media disinformation about the current crisis in Venezuela. Ava Bartlett's website is ingaza.wordpress.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. On Sunday, April 21st, Volodymyr Zelensky, an actor, filmmaker, and comedian with no political experience, won the Ukraine presidency by a landslide. Zelensky's victory has been hailed as marking a new political era in post-Soviet politics and a blow to the oligarchs and old-style political elites. George Eliasson has been carefully monitoring events in Ukraine for the past several years. He is an American journalist, lives and works in Donbass. His articles have been published in the Security Assistance Monitor, Washington's blog, Op-Ed News, The Saker, RT, and Global Research, among others. George Eliasson joined us on the show recently to acquaint us with his perspectives on the election and its implications. We started a discussion with a little historical context on the nationalist movement in Ukraine and its evolution through the 20th and early 21st century. Going into going up to when Ukraine declared its independence. Um, I won't get into the referendum itself that happened that was over, they were independent. But the people that that were pushing for it uh, were mostly out of the diaspora, and it was the nationalists, the children of the nationalists from the 1940s. They would still have the um, fascist groups, that was OUNB, which is OUN Bendera, okay? That was Steve Stepan Bendera's group. Um, Bendera's group in Ukraine is responsible for killing 500,000 Jews, about 4 million Ukrainians. Um, the OUN itself, all the, all the different factions and parties, staffed most of the death camps in Europe. Um, the, the Nazis considered them too violent to give their own country to. That's what a Ukrainian nationalist is. Um, the only equal they had 
were the Eustachio. And the Eustachio are famous because they had the only children's death camp in World War II. And they took a lot of pride throwing babies up in the air and catching them on knives. That's the level of violence that goes along with this type of nationalism. Okay, and that's why she's very, very wrong. Um, after the war, most of these nationalists relocated. They went to the displaced Persian camps in Europe, and then, for the most part, they went to Canada, where you are, and the United States. They also went to Australia, Venezuela, the UK, uh, Germany, but the leadership gravitated toward Canada um, because there was an old settlement there um, and the US. Now, over time, they became, well, actually very rapidly after World War II, they became the key players in the Cold War. And they fed the, the United States and NATO um, every piece of bad intelligence they could find to start a war with the Soviet Union. Now, when the Cold War was ending, they knew that eventually there'd be a free Ukraine, but they didn't have any eyes and ears there. They had a small enclave in West Ukraine, okay, but they didn't really have a lot of contact with those people. They'd never been in what you call Ukraine proper, other than going with Hitler's armies and killing people. They came in, they killed people behind the armies as police units, all right? So Hitler's army had come through and do the actual fighting, and then these people had come through and, you know, rape, pillage, and murder. That's what um, the Ukrainian nationalist part in World War II was, that staff in the death camps. Now, when 1991 came, all of a sudden Ukraine's free, they didn't have any type of mechanism to start a country with. Um, they contacted, they were in contact with the, the now free Ukraine, um, and it turned out to be the sons and daughters of people that were in their armies, they were Ukrainian nationalists. Um, the whole time that and, and I forgot to mention this, but the whole time that they were in a diaspora from, you know, let's say the 40s on, they had a government in exile. Okay, it was called the Ukrainian National Republic. Now, they passed the symbols of this government over to um, what's now Ukraine um, in 1992 with the stipulation that they would follow the same government, same pattern of government, which is fascist nationalist. Okay, and that was the deal. That's what the people here had to had to agree to. Um, of course, they did. Kravchuk, you know, um, signed the agreement. They took the blue and yellow flag, which is actually a Nazi flag. They took the trident, which is a pitchfork, um, one of the favorite tools they used to kill children during the war. Um, they took the, the uh, national anthem from the Ukrainian um, People's Republic. 
all right? So Ukraine, all of a sudden, post-Soviet, doesn't know how to be a nationalist country, but they agreed to be a nationalist country. Now, you had small handfuls of nationalists here, but they didn't have any, any real foothold. Um, everybody else was a Soviet. So if you've got a handful of so a handful of nationalists inside a big grouping, you know, 40 million Soviets, what do you think would happen if they knew they were going to take them over like this? That would have been the end of the nationalism right there. So what ended up happening is that the leaders um, of that time, okay, which ended up being the leaders all the way through to today, including Timoshenko, Poroshenko, um, they set up, privatized the country, took it out of a socialist stance into a privatized fascist stance, ultra-capitalism, where it set up, you know, a handful of oligarchs to, to be very, very wealthy. They set up a two-tier system, you know, for people. So either you're very poor or you're very rich. Um, but they did everything, you know, for themselves. Well, 12 years later, um, the leader that actually gave them the symbols of government and the seating over the power of his government in exile, uh, his name was Nikola Plavium. He was actually a Bandera leader, too. He was a world leader of the OUMM. Um, Nikola got a little bit angry about this. And he told them that they, you know, were failing. This was not a nationalist country. The people that should be heroes, in his eyes, were called traitors and murderers. And the people that killed his people were called heroes. Now, who killed his people? Well, it was everybody that was fighting for the Allies in World War II. Who were his people? His people fought for Adolf Hitler. His people mass murdered everybody across Europe. They killed everybody across Europe that disagreed with them. His people murdered, they, they starved uh, three million Soviet war prisoners to death in Ukraine. His people killed millions of Ukrainians. And he wanted his people to be the heroes. With Ukraine, I find that when you move across the country from west to east, there's a very different conception about uh, what uh, a Ukrainian identity actually is. I mean, you were talking about the this Banderite strain. Of course, as you move from, say, the Galician region over to uh, you know Donbass, uh, very different conceptions. It's hard to even get an appreciation of what uh, of Ukraine as an actual country, and so I, I'm. Curious to know, like with the elections that uh, you know have just been completed, and the, you know the the five years preceding that, you know the the extent to which there's any cohesion left in the country. Well, you, you you've got to understand that um, you know in, in line with your thought that um, you know as much as it pains Ukrainians to hear this, Ukraine was the Ukraine; it was the borderland. But it was the borderland between two empires. The Ukrainian, the Ukrainians on the Habsburg Empire side of the border 
called Little Austrians. The Ukrainians on the um, Russian Empire side of the border were called Little Russians. They'd never been together. It, it was actually uh, World War II that brought them together. Now, you know, when you look at this, um, the West Ukrainians, we'll call them West Ukrainians, it's Book of Indians and Galicians, they never thought of themselves in terms of being Russian. It was always Western. It always been attached to um, the Holy Roman Empire. They were literally sealed. All the, the Holy Roman Empire holdings were um, given a politic. It was a two-tier national. They, they developed nationalism, by the way. Um, a, as a, a prophylactic against the Soviet Union. So Soviet society could not lure these, these um, people from these regions to want to, to join the Russian Empire. They were taught to hate them. So that's where that came from. The people in the East never understood. Outside of that area did not understand nationalism. They had no, had no concept of it. The concept they have of it is from being at war with it. That was, you know, 19, um, you look at the First World War, you look at the Second World War, you look at this war. That's the only conception people here have of it. And, you know, it's never been anything friendly to them. It's always been something that wanted to hurt them. And this particular go-around of it, um, from 1991 on, the state of the government itself, the legitimacy of the government in Kiev is based on making everybody in the country as a whole bow down to Petlora, to Bandera, to Melnik, or be pushed out, or be killed if they, they start causing trouble, or be put in prison. And there's no in-between with it. Um, the last, the first time that that uh, Diaspora complained about it, the last president of the Ukrainian National Republic in the Diaspora had handed over all these symbols to um, the, the newly freed Ukraine, Nikola Plavyuk, 2004, when he said that, you know, he was angry about the, the way um, the Nazis were treated in Ukraine, he said when he gets the country he wants, the current leaders would not survive. That was in August of 2004. In November 2004, we had the Orange Revolution. That's how they answered it. That's how seriously they took his threat. Okay? So that was a dud. The, the Orange Revolution was a dud. They spent 10 years um, building nationalists through the scouting in Ukraine. You have two different groups, um, Sum and Plast. And they took the children from all sides of Ukraine and they tried to instill nationalists in them. Um, and it's actually integral nationalism. So every aspect of your life is regulated by this particular strand of political thought. There's no escaping it. 
2014, they unleashed it. And that became Maidan. They needed a violent revolution to do this. Maidan became that. Right now, the rest of Ukraine is starting to wake up. Um, if you, in answer, I think this will answer your question about the politics in the election. They didn't vote for Zelensky. Um, it was a vote they, against the other candidates. The, the vote was actually against the nationalist thought, the direction that the country's going in. The, the country's going into integral nationalism. That's what it's being pushed into. It's being pushed into the government of, of um, the Ukrainian People's Republic from the diaspora is being pushed on them. We've seen uh, the under Poroshenko uh, a lot of energy be going into this uh, civil war. So what does it mean now that we have uh, Zelensky, uh, a Jew, uh, and, and a comedian who's uh, apparently or supposedly committed to uh, bringing an end to that conflict? What, what does that portend uh, moving forward? Given all of the other the, the the nationalist factor that you've mentioned, has it been beaten down, or is it uh, going to re- reassert itself in other ways? It, it's um, actually with this election reasserting itself um, very very well. Uh, that there was in Maidan, there was a at the beginning of it, you know, January 2014. Um, I took notice of this 17 uh, year old that walked onto the protest. His name was Jaroslav Yurash. Now he's a college dropout. He walks onto the walks onto the scene in Kiev, okay, at Maidan Square, and within days he's a spokesman for Dmitry Yarosh, Arseny Yatsenuk, Oleg Tignibok, Vlad Klitschko, Andrei Peruvi. Then he became it for the defense the Ukrainian Defense Ministry. The United Kingdom diaspora, Rita Poroshenko. If you were in the media and you wanted to talk to any of these people, you spoke to him. If you were any of them and you wanted to go out to the international media, you spoke to him. Now, after Maidan, he started a, well, during Maidan, he started a website. It's called, um, Maidan PR, Euromaidan PR, it became one of Ukraine's um, biggest propaganda sites. From that, Inform Napalm came out as, as uh, you know, it's a sub-site. They do um, informational war and they do intel gathering for Ukraine. Um, the groups of hackers that Ukraine uses also work for him. He's one of the few people in Ukraine that has direct contacts with all three Chalupas, Alexandra, Andrea, and Irina Chalupa at the Atlantic Council. Now, after Maidan, he was given a position of deputy director at the Ukrainian World Congress in Kiev, 
He's not doing too bad for a college dropout. Now, the guy that started the Ukrainian World, Cong um, World Congress was Nikola Pavlyuk. He gave the uh, keys to the kingdom to the Ukrainians in 1991. Sorry, who was that again? Nikola Pavlyuk. Okay. He was the leader of OUNM. Got it. Ukrainian nationalist Melnik, which settled in Canada. So this person here came out of nowhere, and he's a, he's a leader in an organization that represents 20 million people worldwide. Guess where he is today? Where? He's a key advisor for Volodymyr Zelensky and his spokesman. So not a, not a true defeat of the nationalist after all. No, they won. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What they did was they put a kind face on it. Yeah. This was the absolute worst defeat that anybody outside of Ukrainian nationalism could, could suffer in that election. Peter Poroshenko was the known. Okay? Everybody knew where he stood, that he was bad, that he was, you know, you know, the problem is, is, you know, he was lining his pockets too much. Uh, there's an old political saying, pigs get to eat, hogs go to slaughter. And he had a choice of leaving or going to slaughter. And when the Atlantic Council wrote, no second term for Pete, well, the Atlantic Council works for the Ukrainian uh, World Congress. They have, a, they have a contract with them. You mentioned the Atlantic Council, um, but but I could also mention you know, the National Endowment for Democracy and the uh, U.S. State Department and the extent to which they're uh, you know amplifying these uh, these forces. They're all helping. Um, they have people here now that there's a, a person that, that's Newland. No, Christina Dobrovolska. She did okay. some work for Newland. Um, she coordinates between the Ukrainian government, um, the Ukrainian Information Ministry, the Diaspora Leadership, and the, and the U.S. State Department. She's the person that does all this. Okay. Now, she's got her hands in, oh my gosh. It, it, this whole thing went both ways. If you go back to 2016, you know, they're saying that now the Ukrainians were... Um, Trying to trying to disrupt the election and you know push for a Clinton victory. Well, Christina Dobrovolska's people did the oppo research on Trump, and you know, it's another story. But you know you get into Hillary Clinton had um, five or six sets of passwords for the State Department servers. She gave them to her oppo research people. So in in just one instance, Ukrainian intel, which worked for Kushina Dobrovolska, had access to U.S. Secret Server passwords. Um, that's how intertwined all of this actually is. That's how crazy it is. So you get into this particular government with Zelensky. Now, these people, everybody's saying that they're angry about this. The nationalists are all angry about this. However, it's exactly what the nationalists were looking for. What they needed a clean slate, they needed a happy face, they have it. So now they can go on and 
what happened in Odessa and why everybody's pushing remembrance of that from May 2nd to on this year is that with Zelensky in office, it'll be forgotten. Mm-hmm. It'll be given a chance. So yes. We're starting all over again, and you've got somebody that is hired by the absolute worst murderers in the world to be the president of a country. So where does this all leave the Donbass then? I mean, there was this recent offer by uh, Putin to uh, accord passports to uh, people in those uh, in those regions. Well, it's not in an offer. Regions. It's happening. Um, where it leaves Donbass right now is they know that there's no negotiation. Now, Zelensky said no, he's not going to do anything with the Minsk agreements. If you don't do anything, everything is based on the Minsk agreements. Now, nobody wants to talk to the leaders here directly, okay, which is a mistake. Um, What Putin's doing is making sure that regardless of what happens, nobody's going to to do full-scale attacks in in LNR or DNR. And that's what it's doing is giving a layer of protection. Also, the people that, um, the, the front lines here, uh, the living, I mean, you can imagine what it's like to live. All right? Now, the region itself, banks closed in 2014. Now, I don't know if you, you can quite comprehend what that means, trying to live in this century with no banks. Just that one aspect. Add into it uh, rifle fire. Add into that mortar fire. Add into that tank fire. Add into that rockets coming down. That's what the front lines are like right now. Mm. And without this layer of protection, civilians are going to keep getting getting peppered, getting killed. The military here is on a more or less a stand down mode. Okay. Um, most of the time, they can't answer back when they're fired on. So, what would that do for the, the opposing military? It's almost like you're shooting into a fish barrel. Okay, and it makes things very, very difficult. So, what they want is for this to stop. What they want is for a clean investigation. And people that that have done things to be put on trial, and for a clean trial, they're gathering evidence. Um, last fall, I met them at their election, and they just started a commission that is going to investigate every death and all the destruction, building by building. Here, yesterday they announced they had um, an account of every person here, so whether they were killed, whether they were injured. Every building that's been that's been damaged here, because all that adds up to money. It all has to be repaired. Now, with give attacking and attacking and attacking, these are war crimes on war crimes. That's what's going on here. Now, in terms of the passports, which ties back to that, right now, this whole time, it's been people from here defending. There hasn't been a Russian army here. I did passport checks in, in late 2014. Found handfuls of Russians here and there. I found more 
Spanish people in, in one particular spot, and I found Russians in any particular spot. The passports were all Ukrainian. And I found Chechen. I even found an Afghan, one from Afghanistan. But what Ukraine says about a Russian army here, the Ukrainian government doesn't believe it. The, the advisor to the SBU said they weren't here in 2016. Poroshenko said it on a, you know, a number of occasions. The head of the SBU said it. So who are they fighting? As long as you say the Russians are here, no one's going to care what Ukraine does. So, it, you know, it really needs to be, that fact really needs to be reinforced. People here came out of civilian positions, and they didn't join an army to be patriotic. They didn't join an army, a military, to fight a revolution. There was no politics. There was nothing. It was either we fight or we die. Back in 2014, I saw this a couple of, of times. Um, fighters, you know, I'd, I'd talk to them, and I'd say, well, you know, why are you here? You know, are you a soldier? Are you this? Are you that? No, I um, I told my mom I was going on vacation. This is, you know, well, a Russian, by the way, talking about. I told my mom I was going on vacation, you know, a kid about 17, 18. So I took some time off from work. I came out to help because my aunt was here. That's the average Russian that's over here. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to say about the situation before we close this interview? Um, yeah, I, I actually, um, what the, the foreign ministry, um, the foreign minister, um, Vlad Venego, and the deputy foreign minister, Soroka, um, concluded yesterday was that the more people that, that can talk about this and um, what's going on here, the fact that Ukraine needs an intervention itself, because it's not just a problem here. If the problem here ended tomorrow, there's going to be a problem across Europe, and it's going to be a problem that's going to continually spread. If people can take you know, a little self-interest in that and actually look and see what's going on here. It's not too late to stop this. It's not too late to stop bloodshed here or what's going on across Ukraine. We just heard from George Eliasson, American journalist based in Ukraine. His article, Ukraine's voters didn't just reject nationalism, they rejected Maidan, Bandera, and the revolution, appears at mintpressnews.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.